Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dress, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. So Cass, I'm not sure if you and I have ever actually spoken about this before, but do you happen to be a fan of this series Overlooked, which is published in the New York Times? I actually have no idea what you're talking about, so please share. (laughs) Okay, well, um, it is such a brilliant concept, and it was created by Amy Padnani, who was a journalist who was working at the obituary desk at the New York Times back in 2017. And she started to take note about how many messages they were getting from readers asking why the New York Times obituary section didn't cover more women and people of color. So, lo and behold, she decides to do a little investigating and found out that some pretty darn significant historic figures never received an obituary in the Times. And I'm talking about people like journalist and activist Ida B. Wells, Ada Lovelace, who many considered to be the first computer programmer, and even the poet Sylvia Plath never got an obit in the Times. So, Amy decided to write this injustice. I guess I guess that could be a pun. Right, right, right. (laughs) And in 2017, she launched this series, which is called Overlooked. And this is to tell the stories of prominent women and also persons of color whose deaths were never reported by the newspaper. Including the subject of today's episode, Zelda Wynn Valdez, whose overlooked entry we are able to report was written by past dress guest, Dr. Tanisha C. Ford. And Dr. Ford's obit quotes today's guest, Nancy Deal, who wrote a chapter on Zelda for the book she edited, The Hidden History of American Fashion, which I believe you also contributed to April. Yes, I did. And so uh, today's episode is a little bit of like a sort of infinite loop connecting past and present guests with your and I's own projects and even our own education, as Nancy Deal was also one of our professors when we were in grad school. So we're it's just one big happy dressed family here today. <laughs> Yes, and today Nancy serves as the Chair of Art and Art Professions at New York University, where she was formerly the Director of the NYU Costume Studies Program. Aside from the book she will speak to us about today, she's also the co-author of The History of Modern Fashion, a really wonderful survey of fashion history from 1850 up until the 2000s. In April, that book actually came out the exact same year as Fashion, the Art of Pochoir. I remember seeing sure her did. and her co-author there at one of our book events. So, mm-hmm. um, And some of our listeners may recall that we have recommended this book before on dress. So we are so pleased that Nancy finally joins us on the show. Nancy, welcome. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us today on Dressed. It's lovely to see you. You and I have known each other for many years at this point, but um, we haven't seen each other since the pandemic. So thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great to see you too. 
Yeah. So today um, we are going to talk about the career of the quote unquote uptown modiste, Zelda Wynn Valdez, who is just but one of the women covered in the book that you edited, The Hidden History of American Fashion, Rediscovering 20th Century Women Designers. And I have to say, this was such a fun project. So before we get to Zelda, would you tell us a little bit about the impetus behind the book? Oh, sure. I I would say that it began during a conversation with one of the editors at Bloomsbury at the annual symposium of the Costume Society of America in 2015, which took place in San Antonio, Texas. And I mentioned that I thought Bloomsbury should do more publishing on topics related to American fashion. So um, the editor basically on the spot challenged me to propose something. Mm. And at that conference, I felt I had attended a number of the presentations about American designers who had notable careers in their own time, but were largely forgotten. So that really sparked my interest. And I told her I wanted to do a book about that. And I literally, at lunchtime and on breaks, went around to all these presenters and asked if they would be interested in contributing to a book project. And then, of course, afterward, there were other people that I solicited as well to kind of fill out the project. So the point was that there would be enough information on each one of these designers to really write like a good chapter, but they couldn't be so famous that there had already been a lot of scholarship on them. Um, And at that CSA conference in 2015, I had presented on Zelda Wynn Valdez. So of course she was pivotal to the project. Yeah. And and I, of course, contributed the chapter on Tina Leeser. We've already done an episode on her. So listeners, you can go back and, and check out that episode if you want to learn more about her. But there's just so many wonderful stories in the book. You know, there's really kind of new information on the ever elusive Jesse Franklin Turner, who was really known for her tea gowns and kind of like loungewear during the 1920s and 30s. Then there's also Fira Benenson, you know, who was also known as a Countess Alinsky. And she was born into this wealthy family who was forced to flee Russia during the revolution. And Lourdes Font contributed a chapter on Vicky Teal, um, an American designer who was working in Paris in the 70s and 80s. And these designers aren't necessarily household names any longer. But like you said, they were very, very well known during their day. And so was our subject today, Zelda Wynn. And correct me if I'm wrong, but she never received any formal training as a fashion designer. Can you tell us a little bit about her early life and how she came to be working in fashion? Sure, you're absolutely right. She didn't receive any formal training as a designer. Zelda Wynn was born as Zelda Barber in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania in 1905. And she had a middle-class upbringing. She attended local schools. She graduated from high school in 1923. And I was lucky enough to find her high school yearbook. (laughs) And I just want to say that her yearbook picture includes the caption, A Merry Heart Maketh a Cheerful Countenance. Aww. And it was up be, um, I bring this up because all the reports of her as a person um, in interviews and re- accounts of people that knew her said that she was, she was friendly. And although she was reserved, she was like a happy, calm person. Um, and during her childhood, she studied music and learned to sew from her grandmother and from her grandmother's dressmaker. And I think it's important to just note the presence of the dressmaker um, in just a middle-class household because, you know, we don't really think about dressmakers 
mm-hmm. um, in our world. But this is like a, it's a fantastic institution. I think actually we should bring back dressmakers a little bit more. But just because you had a dressmaker didn't necessarily mean you were particularly wealthy. It's just that people wanted nice clothes, especially for special occasions. But back to uh, Zelda Barber, it's true she didn't formally study fashion design or construction. Um, And after she graduated from high school around 1923, she moved to White Plains to help in her uncle's tailor shop Mm. and really took to that type of business. Um, Her uncle had a really busy business. He had male clients and female clients, and she was especially skilled with helping the women. And I also want to say that in 1927, in the White Plains area, she married her first husband, Charlie Wynn. So that's when she became known as Zelda Wynn. Hmm. So we're moving into the 1930s at this point, and she was still in White Plains. And she was advertising herself as a stylist and a copyist in publications that were geared towards African-American populations of White Plains, where she was the only Black-owned dressmaking establishment. So I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit about how segregation played out in terms of the fashion industry during the 1920s and 30s? Well, like most of American society, the fashion industry was segregated um, to various extents, depending on, you know, where you lived. In New York, for example, in the New York area, there were areas that were predominantly white and others that were predominantly black. In some of the more industrialized sectors of the fashion industry, especially in the North, white and black employees worked side by side in factories. But that wasn't true everywhere in the United States. And in terms of the New York region, White Plains was a business district, like a business center that catered to affluent residential suburbs nearby. Mm. So um, people would come into White Plains like to do business, and then obviously they could go home to wherever they were living. And the particular tailoring business in White Plains was very successful. The uncle had white clients, he had black clients. Um, As I mentioned before, he had men and women coming to the tailoring shop. So Zelda Wynn saw the potential to expand and really concentrate on the women's wear market. And her early advertising is really interesting because it's in the New York Amsterdam News, which was a newspaper geared toward a black audience. It explicitly calls her a quote, colored designer, you know, in the, in the terminology that was used at that time. And that really targeted a Black readership, so potential clients for her who would have been very comfortable supporting her business, but also going to a Black dressmaker. Yeah, yeah. She decides to expand and makes a leap in the 1940s, and she relocates to New York City. And that catering to the ladies aspect of of what she was going into, pretty soon she scored some pretty major clients when she hits New York, including she designed the wedding dress for Maria Hawkins Ellington when she married Nat King Cole. So obviously this was covered intensely in the press. So besides obviously the, the PR that she was getting from designing this wedding, Why else was this event so culturally significant? Oh, it's on so many levels. And I'm glad you brought this up because it's such a great event to really think about. So first of all, um, that wedding was in 1948. 
And we have very celebrity bridal couple, especially the groom. Nat King Cole was one of the most popular male vocalists in American music at the time. And, and honestly, really known worldwide. Um, and he's marrying another vocalist, not as famous as he was, but definitely with a reputation of her own. There's also the locale, Harlem's Abyssinian Baptist Church, very famous, you know, landmark church yeah. that was like stuffed with people attending the wedding. The officiant of the wedding was Adam Clayton Powell, who had been the pastor of that church, but at that time he was a congressman from New York. Um, really, again, you know. High profile. <laughs> I profile everybody. And also of note is the fact that the bridal party, and there were seven bridesmaids and seven groomsmen. So it was a big, it was a big party, um, was interracial. And this is a phenomenon that was noted in the press and also linked to the fact, again, in the press, that the bride and groom had so many friends from the worlds of entertainment and media. And, you know, the kind of reading between the lines here, like the explanation being that, People in entertainment and the media are somehow more like progressive than like um, regular America. So it was it was quite an event. Yeah, and and, and I understand they had quite the uh, reception as well. Correct. <laughs> yes, they did um, a reception that people were trying to crash, and it was very elegant. And honestly, you could write a whole book on that event. It, it looked really terrific. Yeah, I, I read a little, I, I dug into like some of the um, primary sources around it a little bit, and it was very much also a fashion event. So all of a sudden, Zelda's name is in the press associated like with all these celebrities, really. And they flocked to her, including a lot of other performers. Who else was she dressing around this time? Well, I can tell you uh, just a list of the performers that she dressed during her career, starting with Mae West really early in uh, Zelda Wynn's career, Josephine Baker, Diane Carroll, uh, Jesse Norman, Marian Anderson, Dorothy Dandridge, Ruby Dee, Bertha Kitt. Um, you'll notice that this list is predominantly famous African-American vocalists and actresses. But she also had clients who were socially prominent Black women, such as Edna Mae Robinson, who was a dancer, but she was kind of better known as the wife of boxer Sugar Ray Robinson. She was a steady Zelda Wynn client. And Zelda Wynn only did custom work. Mm -hmm. You know, she never did like a collection that was available through retail. So all of these women had very individual attention placed on them by her. Yeah. Exactly. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. 
the well sleuth with june in the antique parlors of new york the chic sidewalks of paris and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens and there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends so join us dress listeners in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery danger and romance discover your inner detective when you download june's journey for free today on ios and android Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. So you've listed some of these incredible performers who she was dressing and, you know, starting with Mae West. And if you really think about all these women, a lot of these women were very curvy ladies. And I would argue that Zelda was best known for crafting these kind of curve clinging creations that look spectacular on stage. A lot of her work is very, very sexy. So fit must have been an aspect of her constructions that were incredibly important to her. Yes? Absolutely. And this might be a moment to talk about the work that she did for the beautiful cabaret singer, Joyce Bryant. Mm. And there, there are amazing photos that document some of Joyce Bryan's gowns. They're strapless. They're extremely body hugging. Some with ruffles at the floor length that really created this fantastic kind of mermaid-like silhouette for the singer. Um, and in fact, there are many images of Zelda Wynn with her clients, actually fitting her clients. So it's uh, something she absolutely was known for. The customization was really important, and she spoke about it in interviews and in the oral history that she recorded in 1995. 
Um, and she once recalled that Ella Fitzgerald was a steady client who would order dresses long distance and when adjusted the sizing based on photos she saw of <laughs> because she wanted them all to fit perfectly, but she didn't have the chance to measure her in person because Ella Fitzgerald was constantly touring. Mm -hmm. And the one dress that is known and kind of publicly available is a dress that was donated by Ella Fitzgerald to um, the Smithsonian African American Museum. And it's really wonderful to see because it also includes Zelda Wynn's label in it. Yeah, and it's really beautiful. It's black, has a little bit of lace. Is it like tulle, top at the bodice? Um, yeah, it has like a, a some trim around the bodice, but the amazing thing about it is that it's really heavily beaded. And of course, all that would have been done by hand. So um, it's a real treasure. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, Zelda's notoriety for, for being able to sculpt the feminine form, you know, this is probably almost certainly what drew the attention of Hugh Hefner. So let's just head on, head first into this myth that Zelda designed the Playboy Bunny costumes, because I think that any of our listeners that may have heard of Zelda before might have heard about her in the context of the bunny costumes, but there's quite a lot of misinformation out there about this. Yes, and I'm glad you refer to it right off the bat as a myth, because we know that in fashion history, everyone loves a creation myth, right? Um, so it's good to have an opportunity to set the record straight. And the first thing I want to say is that the claims for Wynn's, quote, invention of the Playboy Bunny costume seem to start appearing in the early 2000s. Hmm. Um, but she, she didn't make that claim. Other people made it. And in the oral history interview that I've already referred to, she does talk about working with Hugh Hefner and her work with the New York Playboy Club. But keep in mind, although we like to think that everything in New York happens first, that's actually not the case in terms of Playboy Enterprises. The New York Playboy Club opened in December 1962, but other Playboy Clubs were already in existence in other locations. Um, the first one had opened in 1960 in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And when the New York Club was opening, Zelda Wien and her workshop got the contract to fabricate the bunnies costumes for the New York Club. And obviously she would have been a natural choice for this because of her history and her reputation as um, being a really reliable costumer, right? So that was reported in the press, like that she got the contract. And she recounted in the, in the oral history interview that Hugh Hefner was really happy with what she had done. Remember, again, it was all about the fit and yeah. making the bunnies look good, but they also had to be able to move around, you know, do their work. So this was something that it was like she was really skilled at. So based on her good relationship with Hugh Hefner, she began to stage fashion shows at the Playboy Club in 1963. And these were really snazzy, sophisticated presentations of fashion. And the series even got a name and it was advertised as, quote, Zelda at the Playboy. Oh. So I think from all of this, people have conflated like her work with the Playboy Club to some kind of like invention, but that's, that's really what happened. Yeah. And, and, you know, as a Black designer, what was it about her connection to Playboy that was so significant? Well, it was, you know, 
when we think about fashion shows at the Playboy Club, already that's kind of interesting, right? Because fashion shows are for women, traditionally. Mm-hmm. And the Playboy Club is for men. But so here we have this like really kind of sophisticated mixing of the audience. And it's also important to note that the Playboy Club, unlike many other nightlife venues at the time in the early 60s, was integrated. So Hugh Hefner, for all his faults, was committed to integration. And in addition to black and white clientele, he also had bunnies of all colors. Mm -hmm. Like the African-American women were called bronze bunnies. He also had Asian bunnies. He had um, Latina bunnies. Um, And one of the most famous bunnies at the New York club was actually a bronze bunny. Um, Her name was Marion Barker, and she was also um, a well-known model who modeled in Zelda Wynn's fashion shows. So the association of Zelda Wynn with Playboy Enterprises really represented an important, like, mainstream connection that was outside, like, the solely African-American context. Right. And that leads perfectly into my next question that I wanted to ask you, because in the 1960s, Zelda relocated her shop from Harlem to Midtown. So I'm curious as if you have any thoughts on why she decided to leave Uptown, her predominantly Black neighborhood that she had been working in, where she had been so successful for so long to come downtown to Midtown. You know, I don't know if we could pinpoint one particular reason, but I think it's important to note that It wasn't just anywhere in Midtown. It was on 57th Street, which was close to Carnegie Hall, was close to the theater district. So it was a way of being physically closer to her entertainment world clients. Um, And even though she didn't have a storefront as she had uptown, it was a more prestigious location. Mm -hmm. And we should also note that when she moved, she also changed the name of the store to Shea Zelda. (sighs) So it was a a real kind of upscaling move on her part. Mm -hmm. I'd like to turn our attention away from a little bit of the specific fashion and costume design that she was doing and talk about a little bit about the organizing and philanthropy in which she engaged, because it seems that even from the very earliest years of her career, she was exceptionally civic-minded. What can you tell us about some of the initiatives that she was involved with over the course of her career? Um, early on in her career, you're absolutely right. I mean, she has a she had a long, long history of community involvement. Um, there's even a mention of her being the financial secretary in the ladies auxiliary of a men's fraternal organization way back in the 20s or 30s. Mm. Um, Over the course of her career, she participated in like probably hundreds of charity fashion shows, you know, things that were fundraisers for different organizations. Um, She was one of the founding members of the National Association of Fashion and Accessory Designers, also known as NAFAD, N-A-F-A-D, That was an organization founded in 1949 of Black designers who organized for networking and professional development and to promote Black talent. And starting in the 1960s, she worked with the Harlem Youth Opportunities. It was like a community program. And she was one of the founders of Harlem Youth Symphony Orchestra. So yes, a long history indeed. She's a very busy lady. (laughs) (laughs) So 
1976, Essence did have a feature on Zelda and pointed out also, in addition to all of this, that she had been teaching sewing for 30 years and had helped open up 23 sewing centers. So would you tell us a little bit more about her work with Harlem Youth Opportunities and their fashion programs? Um, yeah, so she, this is a volunteer, you know, the teachers were volunteers in the community and she taught sewing to young people, but she also taught fashion design and costume design. And, you know, we, we should note here that she really kind of moved back and forth between those two worlds over the course of her career um, very smoothly. And as part of her many years leading her own workshop, she was able to bring a lot to those sewing lessons, um, not just skills, but also contacts, mm-hmm. um, you know, putting people in touch with potential employers and also using her contacts to benefit the students in terms of materials, you know, getting sewing machines donated, getting fabric donated, uh, things like that. And I would probably argue too, maybe even like in some of those business aspects, being able to answer their questions and support them, you know, as well. Absolutely. And she was on so many um, kind of panels, being an expert, being a guest speaker, you know, things like that. A a mentor, basically, Mm -hmm. really an, an, an advisor. Well, and it was her work with the Harlem Youth Opportunities that led to her affiliation with the Dance Theater of Harlem. Would you tell us a little bit about her costuming of the Dance Theater of Harlem? Sure. She began working with Dance Theater of Harlem in 1970, um, and she met the founder, um, Arthur Mitchell, through Harlem Youth Opportunities because his nieces had been in her classes. Hmm. And keep in mind, she was already in in her 60s. So, you know, apparently this is someone who was up for anything because she worked with the dance troupe for the next 20 years. She designed for dance performances, but also with her other seamstresses, executed the designs of other costume designers and production designers that the company worked with. So she really ran a full service costume department. And one wonderful innovation that Zelda Wynn promoted was tights and shoes that were dyed to match the individual dancer's skin tones. This is a real departure from the standard kind of pale pink legs and feet of ballet. Mm-hmm. One that really honored the diversity of the troupe, and it became part of like the established aesthetic of Dance Theater of Harlem. Yeah, and, and that kind of leads into, you write about in the book that perhaps the most important aspect of Zelda Wynn's career is the alignment with the civil rights movement. I'm quoting you there. I'm hoping that you can expound upon this idea more in terms of the mark that she left on fashion with those innovations like you were just referring to about the tights and the shoes. Her career was so long. I mean, think about working from the 1920s into the 1990s. Um, that she was really able to not just observe social change, but to really actively participate in moving forward a positive image of Black women. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all know about the importance of appearance, right? I mean, this is something that we, we talk about every day. Um, so at a personal level, she was able to craft a sophisticated image for her clients and her work with the National Association of Fashion Accessory Designers, the NAFEDS, was crucial at the professional level, you know, in, the, in the professional world, as Black designers sought more links with the larger fashion industry. 
her efforts in youth training were very tangible, you know, giving young people marketable skills. And her work with Dance Theater of Harlem literally brought that positive image to the stage. And particularly through their international tours, the dancers went out as ambassadors representing Black American excellence. So in all these different phases and in all these different ways, I think she was really committed to a positive image. Yeah. I also love the fact you write about in the book that her career defies categorization because she was so uh, fluidly moving through the realm of fashion and, and costume design and kind of constantly blurring the lines between those two quite often. Yes. And I think it's, you know, sometimes fashion is very separate from costume design. But when you're talking about designing the costumes for Eartha kits, like cabaret season. Yeah. You know, okay, there are costumes, but they're going to influence people and people are going to imitate them. So then it becomes fashion. So I think it's, it's a really, her, her career was really wonderful in that she didn't seem to have to kind of stick to one track. Yeah. Thank you, Nancy, so much for joining us to talk about the amazing Zelda Wynn. We really appreciate you joining us on Dressed. Thanks, April. It's been a total pleasure. And I'm really, really happy to have had the opportunity to tell people about Zelda Wynn Valdez. She really had an amazing career. Yes. Thank you. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always such a delight to speak with her, April. And I know we both love the modern textiles course she taught when we were in grad school. She, I mean, she's really a font of knowledge on so many subjects. Yes, yes, yes. And if you'd like to learn more about her work, grab a copy of either of her books, The History of Modern Fashion, and also the one we spoke a bit about today, uh, The Hidden History of American Fashion, Rediscovering 20th Century Women Designers. That does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider some of the hidden histories residing in your closet next time you get dressed. Please tune in Thursday for our mini-sode where we answer listener questions and or keep you up to date on the latest fashion history happenings today. And if you'd like to submit a question for a future fashion history mystery, please feel free to DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episode. And of course, you can always email us at dress at iheartmedia.com. As always, thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.